Morning, everyone. Morning. I woke up this morning with a little bit of a head cold, and so I'm praying that my voice will keep going all morning. But I found it really hard. I'm trying to rest it. I could find it hard when we were worshipping then not to sing, because I love singing and I love praising God. And it's also really good to sing and praise God when you have a bit of a cold, because tunes help you breathe more easily. <laughs> You have to be a certain age to appreciate that one. <laughs> I wonder if I asked you what you thought the greatest sin was, I wonder what you'd say. And before your mind goes imagining some crazy, horrible things, let me tell you what Christians throughout the ages have thought. The number one thing that will destroy your relationship with God more than anything else is pride. As far as we know, it was the source of the greatest rebellion in all of heaven and was what led the devil to fall. As far as we know, the scriptures only tell us little bits, gives a little bit of an insight about where the origin of evil came from. But we think, and as far as we understand, that the devil was once an angel. But he wanted to be God, or perhaps rather, he thought that God wasn't doing a very good job and he could do a better one. I mean, I always think, you know, you know the way that uh, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, um, you know, despised Jesus. Didn't you remember that time when uh, Jesus was ministering to the poor and, uh, and, uh, and Judas thought, why, why this waste of all this money on Jesus? Why shouldn't it be you know, given? But he didn't care about the poor. He only really cared about the fact that he couldn't get all the money. And, you know, Jesus, Judas despised Jesus for caring for the poor. And I kind of think perhaps the devil exactly thought that God was weak when he just declared his love for the world. If, you, if you're reading your Bibles, any of you Bible scholars amongst you, look at Isaiah chapter 14 or Ezekiel chapter 28. There's a lot of dispute about whether those two chapters actually mean the, the, what the fall of the devil is about. But they're very, they give some very interesting ideas. Clearly rebellion was in the heart of Lucifer, the morning star. They always say that pride comes before a fall. And it came before the biggest fall of all. Satan thought he could do a better job than God. And he set up the spiritual battle that we witness today. Other sins that people commit, you know, they're often the kind of thing that they're looking for good in the wrong places. You know, so like people are looking for love, but they look in love in all the sorts of the wrong ways. And so get caught in all sorts of sexual sin and things like that. But actually they were looking for a good thing, but found it in the wrong, looked, looked in the wrong place. If you think of so much uh, people looking for happiness and people try and find happiness in all the material goodness of uh, material goods that they find around them, and that happiness is not wrong and material goods are not wrong, but trying to find your happiness in those things will ultimately never satisfy you. Pride sets up a standard against our fellow man and against God. It encases our hearts in a cold, hard, impenetrable shell. Pride delights in thinking yourself better than anyone else. You might live in a nice house, but a proud man won't be happy until he lives into a nicer house than you do. 
A proud man will compete with you. A proud man may, may you know, try, you may you know, earn a fair amount of money. A proud man will only be satisfied when he earns more money than you do. He's competitive. The trouble with pride is it's hardest to see in yourself. I mean, you obviously know if you eat too much, it has physical <laughs> consequences. You obviously know if you smoke or drink too much, it has all those sorts of physical consequences. But pride is hidden from us, perhaps until we meet someone with the same problem. Because perhaps the idea that you want to be the, the biggest noise in the room uh, reacts with the fact that somebody else is actually a bigger noise than you are. And therefore, the pride uh, rears in you. We can all see pride in other people. But the more it is in us, the greater will be the, re the uh, reaction when we see it in others. And when did you last hear anybody confess that they were proud? You might hear people confess that they, as I say, eat too much or drink too much or something like that. But when did you last hear someone confess that they were proud? And the issue of pride comes, into his, comes to a head when we meet with God because in him we meet someone who is infinitely greater, infinitely higher, infinitely wiser than us. And yet somehow people shake their fists against God as if like an ant was to try and shake its fist against me. It just is crazy. Human beings have such a pride in themselves in the wrong way when it comes to facing God, which is one of the greatest barriers, in fact, as to why people don't actually believe. More of that in a while. Now, there's a, there's a lovely passage in, uh, in the first book of Paul's letter to the, the church in Corinth that I'd like to read a little bit to you. It brings all of this out. Um, but first, have you ever been to Corinth? Um, I've been to uh, Corinth on some school trips. Uh, we did some school trips, some classic school trips. Apparently in Paul's day, uh, Paul who wrote the book to, to the Corinthians, there were about 250,000 free men there and 400,000 slaves. Uh, and it was a centre of commerce. Um, as you'll see, there, there, there's a thin strip of land between Athens and Corinth. This is called the Peloponnese at the bottom here, uh, uh, like that. And there's a thin strip of land uh, which is about seven miles long. Uh, but if you wanted to get to, to ships from one side round to the other, and there were, there were ports on both sides, um, then, in fact, what they did in, in Paul's day, they actually built a sort of a, a road that they actually used to haul the ships across. Or if the ships were too big, they would actually unload them on one side and uh, transport all the stuff on carts and take it through to the other side uh, just to avoid the 200-mile dangerous journey around uh, the, 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 the Peloponnese like this. Uh, in the 19th century, they did this. They actually uh, built a canal going through. I think it's an amazing bit that they did like that. These are ocean-going ships that go uh, across there. And uh, I've actually stood on the top of those bridges there uh, watching the ships go by with about 50, 14-year-old uh, girls, which was rather interesting when we were on our trips to, 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 to Greece. Uh, apparently, these, uh, these bridges are really brilliant for bungee jumping. I've never been tempted to have a bungee jump, but you can understand why uh, bungee jumping might be a good thing to do across uh, like that. Uh, then you can go in to see what's called the Old City. 
And in the old city, these are the ruins that you can see today of the, uh, the place that Paul would have been writing to. And it's actually amazingly well preserved in some places. And, and some of the things that Paul writes about in his letter, you can actually find evidence for in this. So there's quite a lot of temples, which Paul talked a lot about in his letter. Uh, there was a meat market, again, which, which Paul talks about for various reasons. Uh, all sorts of things. There's actually even a remains of a synagogue, and Paul again talks about all that. Some fantastic historical evidence for the back ground of a letter that Paul wrote. And Paul arrived there in about AD 52. He'd been in Athens for a while and he stayed in Corinth for about 18 months. He then moved on in, in his missionary journey to other places. And about 18 months later, uh, he wrote, or sorry, four years later probably, he wrote this letter back to the Christians in uh, this new church in, in Corinth uh, because they'd been having some problems and not everything was going well and Paul wanted to get them back on track. So this is the passage, part of the first chapter of the book that he wrote, the letter that he wrote to them. If you want to follow it in your Bibles, it's in the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 1 and verse 18. But it's all on the screen for you. And it says this, it says, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he's used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It's foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. And it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. When we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say, it's all nonsense. Now in the culture of their day, there were actually these two main philosophies, what we may describe as the Greek philosophy and the Jewish philosophy. And to a certain extent, these two philosophies still remain today. The Greeks thought that knowledge and wisdom were the most important things. Now, in knowledge of itself is good. I mean, I spent 40 years trying to teach girls chemistry. Um, I'm not sure quite how much uh, success that I necessarily had with many of them, but actually some of the girls that I taught have gone on to be doctors and have healed many, and some of them have gone on to be medical research people, all sorts of things, and maybe come up with some new medical research. So knowledge of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, one day uh, I went to, I had a bit of something on my back, and I went to visit my local doctor in Hitchin, and I went into this new doctor's surgery, and I got inside the door, and the the doc said to me, oh, hello, sir. <laughs> I'm glad she was looking at my back and not my front, but there we go. Um, so, so some of the others have become teachers themselves. And Christians have always believed that knowledge is actually in itself a good thing. Um, for example, most of the universities that we have were actually originally set up by Christians. It's a really interesting thing. There is no merit in remaining ignorant. God gave us brains and he expects us to use them. 
It's interesting, we were just uh, the other week at a Christians Against Poverty conference and uh, there was a lady giving a testimony how she'd come out of, of debt and, and into freedom uh, from financial worries. And uh, she was talking about the fact that she'd actually just got baptised. And when she got baptised, she said before that she was dyslexic and couldn't read. After she was baptised, she actually said, I've received the gift of reading. And so she began to read like she'd never read before, which is wonderful. And that's the amazing thing. God expects us to use the brains that we have. So why was Paul so against knowledge? The trouble with knowledge and wisdom is it can make you think that you're better than other people. Verse here from uh, later on in the letter uh, it, it first, in the, in the NIV, it says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Or in the New Listening Translation, it says this, while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. So it's not knowledge alone, it's wrong. It's the idea that because I know more than you do, I'm a better man than you. It's the looking down on other people. It's the pride that poisons our souls. Now, the thing is that there is good pride... And there is bad pride, if you understand me. In other words, um, I mean, I've got a degree in chemistry. Um, I was, and you know, I worked hard for it. I studied for it. I gave lots of time towards it. And when I got my degree in chemistry, people came around to me and said, "Well done." Now, there's a real sense in which I'm proud of what I did. And I'm proud of the successes that my children have had in getting the qualifications that they have had. There is good pride. The trouble is, if I use that acknowledge and achievement to kind of gloat over things and say, well, you only got three GCSEs, you're not very good. If I do anything like that, I've crossed the line. And it, it was this kind of thinking, one of the, the, the heresies that affected the beginning church, the early church, the heresies are things that are teachings that were going to lead people astray. One of the teachings that they had there was called the Gnostic heresy. Gnostic comes from the Greek word meaning to know, gnosis. And the thing about the Gnostic heresies is, is, is that there were people who said, actually, to get to know God, there are certain truths, certain secret things you need to get. You need to get. And we, are, you know, we, the holders of this, are the only people that can tell you what they are. So unless you have this, this secret knowledge, you couldn't actually have a relationship with God. But I want to tell them that the, the, the secret's out. There is one way to know Christ. There is one way to know God. And that is to kneel before the foot of the cross and say to God, God, you alone have knowledge. You alone have wisdom. You have died to save me. You have died to give me a new life with you. That's the only way to know God. It's not by education. And of course, that's hard for highly educated people to understand. Paul said it's foolishness to them. It's, they just can't get it. What they like to be able to do is to say, I have understood it all. I have worked it all out. And of course, that's what so many atheistic uh, people of, of our age have tried to do. So, for example, as you know, people like Richard Dawkins, who's the, uh, the scientist who um, you know, has been you know, very, very anti-God, very, very anti-God. Uh, he says that belief in God is like a virus and we all need to be purged from it. 
I mean, he looks at the amazing complexity of life with chance upon chance upon chance needed for it to happen and concludes somehow that it all happened by itself. Amazing. They don't believe that the billionth upon billionth upon billionth chance makes it so impossible that it just, I mean, you know, we don't believe that in any other way. You know, if I, I don't play the National Lottery, but let's say I did, all right, okay. If I played the National Lottery um, and, I, and, I, and I won it this week, you'd all say, hey, Phil, I'm your friend, you know. If I won it next week as well, you'd say, well, I didn't think that was possible. Just amazing. If I won it three weeks in a row, there isn't one of you who wouldn't believe I wasn't in league with Camelot. In that kind of area, we can't believe in such impossibilities. And yet the impossibility of life beginning completely by chance is that kind of, that kind of possibility. They say, the, the evolutionists, like, like Richard Dawkins say, what's the chance that life began uh, completely by chance? And they say, one in one. Well, that's odd. I thought it was billions. They say, one in one. Because they say, well, here we are, you know. That, that's what, that, there is a one in one. We are here. I mean, it's, it's rather like saying, what is the chance that you came to church this morning? I mean, in one sense, there's a billionth upon billionth chance that it's you that's sitting there. You mean, you could say, you know, well, what about if, um, if instead my, grand, my grandmother didn't marry George but married Albert, Albert instead? It wouldn't be a you here. It would be someone else. It's a, it's a billionth upon billionth chance that you are here. But in one sense, it's a one in one chance that you're here because here you are. But, the, you know, there, there's this, this incredible belief that somehow, you know, the, the billionth upon billionth of billionth don't count. We are here. And, 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 and there must be somehow behind it a miracle that actually made it all happen. And of course, the incredible thing is that the vast majority, in fact, it was, it was always interesting when I was at university, um, just a year or two ago, but, but when I was at university, there were more Christians who were scientists than who were arts students. Because scientists tend to believe in realities and in truths, something that you can actually, you know, put in black and white. And then once we got to the answer, we're happy with it and we move on. Whereas very many people who are artistic in their thing, they just keep wanting to ask questions upon the questions upon questions. And when you've answered one question, they've got another question. They're, they're, they don't really want to know an answer. They actually just love asking questions, if you see the, the way that it works. And so the, the, the fact is, as a scientist, I'm absolutely convinced that this world could not have happened by chance. It just could not have done so. And there are so many very famous scientists, and I love the, you know, the, here's a quote from someone called uh, Ke Johannes Kepler. He discovered the laws of planetary motion. And he said, science is a process of thinking God's thoughts after him. God already worked it out. So God's designed it that we cannot find him by our own wisdom. So our brains are wonderful and we should use them to the best of our ability. But we can only know him in our hearts. We need to look. If you've never given your life to Jesus, and I wanted you to, to really stress this this morning, there are things that are going on inside of you that actually are protecting you from coming to God. They're like a wall, like a barrier. 
It might well be, well, I don't need God because I'm, you know, everything's all right and I know and I understand. It might be you feel like that. And that's the very pride that Paul is talking about in his letter that needs to be delivered. We need to be delivered from. It's foolishness to a wise man. Human wisdom leads us to pride and pride will bow down to no one. Now, it's not that we should not, you know, uh, that we shouldn't be grateful for the gifts that God has given us and to use them well, because we should. I mean, you know, it's not that if we, you know, made the people that have little education prime minister that we might get a better job. Actually, well, we might, I don't know. But, uh, but you understand, it's not, it's not that if we did that and, and de- denied what God has given us, that, we, that things would necessarily turn around. God has given many of us gifts. The only thing is that we just need to understand that those gifts come from him and from him alone. And we should always give thanks to him for what he has given us. Not thinking that actually somehow we deserved it or it's our, to our credit that we have those things. A proud person gets to the place where they don't care what anybody else thinks about them. Now, of course, sometimes it's really relevant that we don't care what other people think about us because we care incomparably more than God God thinks about us rather than what somebody else thinks about us. It's actually really important like that. But a proud man just thinks, well, I don't care what anybody else thinks because I've basically got it all together and I understand it. And why should I care about what anybody else thinks? A humble person listens and takes account of all that is said to them before they act. Sadly, pride can even find its way into the church. You know how easy it is for us to sit and listen to a preacher and criticise the message. Oh, I could have done better than that. You're probably all thinking that at the moment, all right? Yeah, there are always some people that come after you after you've spoken and say that what you said was good, but you didn't talk about that and that and that as well. It's rather like going out for a roast beef dinner and complaining you don't have lamb as well, you know. We need to learn to feed on the word that God gives us. And yeah, I mean, there's always 10 other things one could have said, but we need to learn to feed on what God has given us, not to criticise what other people have said or not said. You know, some people enjoy a Sunday lunch of roast preacher. Very easy to do. And the thing is, I'm sure though, I mean, it's so easy to import pride into our faith. Because in our faith, sometimes Christians can get so convinced about what they feel and believe that they want to tell everybody, to enforce it upon everybody else. And it comes over in a proud way. And I'm sure you have all met proud Christians. And sometimes we get very turned off by proud Christians. Again, it's not that we don't believe in truth, but it's how that truth is given, how that truth is communicated that makes all the difference. And it's not that I know it all and you don't know it all. You understand what I'm trying to say? Really never, never, ever can be like that. You know, it's easy to criticise our church leaders and accuse them of being proud. I mean, people uh, just recently criticized me. Someone came to me and said, you know, they thought that I was proud. And I want to tell you that they don't know the half. 
Because I want to tell you how much, how many times I, and I'm sure many other Christian leaders, have cried to God to say to God, keep me clear of this. Because it's the one danger that will spoil everything that I am and everything that I seek to do. Do you understand? Pride will destroy what God wants to do. So knowledge puffs up and it makes us feel important. One of the reasons I respect our leader, our pastor Matt, is the number of times I've seen him in meetings on his knees whenever a call to repentance is given. We may not always agree with everything he says. I don't always agree with everything I say. (laughs) But I know his heart. Do you understand that? His heart is to be clear before God. So, so we have that. Now, the Jews, so the Greeks were after one thing, and the Jews were looking for a sign. And you find that in Jesus' ministry when he fed the 5,000 and started to tell them what, that he was the bread of life. And they said, they said to him, they said, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. What are you going to do? Strange. Jesus had just given them a miracle. He just fed 5,000 people. And they say, we want a sign. Because the trouble is that if if what you are after is I want God to give me a sign that he is real, then I'll believe. If that's what you're after, listen, the trouble is you've still got to believe in God when the sign comes and act on it. I mean, there's a lovely story in the Bible of a guy called Gideon who was afraid to go into battle and, uh, and he said to God, he said, am I supposed to do this or not? And he, so he prayed one night and he said, Lord, make this sheep's fleece on the ground uh, wet with dew, but all the rest of the ground dry. And, so, and that's what happened. Then he wrung a whole bowl full of water out when he did that next morning. But then he said, well, Lord, I'm not sure. Please, give me another. So make that one dry and all the ground wet. And that's the trouble with signs. If you're not careful, there's still the need to obey it. There's one of the clients I went to see once with my Christians Against Poverty work, who um, I said to, so she said, if God gives me a sign, I'll be at your church every, you know, every Sunday morning. And she, she, she had this most incredible dream. It was a waking dream. She, well, she was half awake, half asleep. And she came to me, she rang me up, and she said, to, she said, Phil, I know it's true. God is real. He's shown it to me. I said, see you in church on Sunday morning. She says, well, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> a sign is good, but it needs acting upon. You see, the thing is that, uh, you know, if you want to go to Stevenage, for example, I mean, if you go, you go out the, 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 uh, the building and turn left, you'll soon see signs that say, Stevenage this way, and you'll be on your way. If you turn right, you won't see a sign about Stevenage at all. You'll be really confused. If you're on the right road and you're, go, you're looking for God, then you'll find signs will litter your way and they will show you, go this way, not that way. If you're not really looking for God, any sign that you've got will actually just confuse you and will not lead you in the right way at all. You know, sometimes there are some Christians who are so, so want something to be right that they believe any old sign, any old how, and it's obviously not true. You ever met people like that? A Christian must not be gullible. Do you understand me? Must not be gullible. I so want this to be true, I'll make anything fit into my little world here. Do you understand that? We never ever do that. But God will give us signs when we're on the right road. But to the Jews, the cross, 
the biggest sign of all, that sign that showed how much God loved the world, was and is a stumbling block. It's in offense. It clashed against all their ideas of what the Messiah would be like. For here the weakness of God proves to be stronger than human strength. They wanted a Messiah to destroy the power of Rome, but through weakness, God destroyed the powers of darkness that were far stronger than any military power. And God's doing the same thing today. He go, Paul, in his letter, goes on to say, he chooses the foolish things in this world to shame the wise. You know, there are people in this church who perhaps have little influence in the world through their natural gifts and talents. But in the kingdom, shine brighter and ever so much more than all the clever ones amongst us. For here, it's not what you know, but who you know. And it's those who understand their weakness is the best who turn out to be the strongest. It's those who most fully understand the scripture that I have been crucified with Christ. Those people are the ones that God can most fully use. For pride, the temptation to put myself at the center is a disease that none of us will ever be free from. You know, I don't know about you, but I have to take a certain medication every morning that if I don't take that medication, certain physical symptoms will come and, and then and I shall be in trouble. I have to take that, that medication every morning. And there's a real sense which every morning I need to take the medication that I need to remember that although, and, and I am a child of God, I have been made new, I have been restored, I have been renewed, I am now God's child. But even though I know that, I must always say to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? Because the moment we get away from the cross alone. Now, we believe in the cross and the resurrection together. Yeah? We believe in both of them together. We believe that God has given us a new life. But we always, always, always need to remember that the symptoms of pride can, can, can reappear so easily. I must be crucified daily. The cross says not my will, but yours. The cross says that my weakness is, is stronger than man's strength. The cross says that worldly pleasure may have to be sacrificed so that eternal pleasure can be gained. That's a foolishness to some people. They want their own strength to be the thing that controls things. But right here, your strength cannot take you anywhere. You have to understand before God your weakness. God chooses the lowly things and the things that are not to nullify those things that are to stop all boasting. And if God has chosen you, it's not because of your intelligence or good looks. He can only choose those who understand, who really understand that before him they have no worth other than the worth that God chooses to give them. In a word that, that Graham Kendrick, one of our great songwriters, just has written in a recent song, he says this. He says, two wonders now that I confess, my worth before God and my unworthiness, the fact I don't deserve it at all, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. And it's only by understanding that here we give what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose at the cross. 
And that's where I want us to leave us. This morning, you know, many weeks we will be here and we will say that God has made you this and God has done this for you. And absolutely, I believe every single word of it. But this morning, I want us to, do, to, to just take a minute. And sometimes we get people to stand at the end of a service, but I don't want you to stand at this, this morning. I mean, it would be inconvenient for us to kneel here, but you know, sometimes it's really important for us to come before God. You know, there was a, there was a, 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 a publican and a, a, and a Pharisee in the Bible. The Pharisee came to God and he said, God, I thank you. I'm not like everyone else. I'm this, I'm that, I'm great. I've got it all together. And the publican just said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And this morning, so just where you are, please would you just bow your head. You know, there are some people here who have never, ever given their life to Jesus. And one of the things that may well be the thing that's stopping you is that pride. The fact you want it, you want to understand it, you, you just want to have it all together. But God is saying to you this morning, you need to leave that alone. You need to leave that aside. You've got to stop all your arguments. You've got to kneel at the foot of the cross. I ask God to forgive you because that's the only way. It's the only way that you can know God. And if that is you this morning, I want to pray for you. I want to ask God to do a special thing in you this morning. So I want you, if, you, if that is you, if you're someone who's been that way and you know it, You've put up all sorts of arguments. You've all put up all sorts of, 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 of things against God. But you know that's not the real issue. The real issue is your willingness to be obedient in your heart. You don't want to be changed. You don't want God to invade your life. Listen, you're either going to build a pride, a shell of pride around yourself. Or you're going to allow God to come and fill you with His Holy Spirit. If that's you this morning, if you want God to come into your life and you want to sacri- you want to say, Lord, I'm sorry for fighting. I'm sorry for putting up a barrier between me and you. If that's you this morning, I want you to raise your hand so that I can pray for you. And we can invite you to come to know Jesus for yourself. Thank you very much. Bless you. Bless you. Anyone else who just wants to do that? Amen. Bless you. That's good. Anybody else for whom that is true? You just want to lay it down. Lay it down. Lay it down. Lay it down. Lay down all your arguments. Lay it down. Lay it down. And welcome him in. Welcome him in. Say to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you that you died, that I might have a new life, that I might know you for the first time in a reality, not through my brain, good though it is, but Lord, through my heart, because you've done a work there, you've done something new inside me. Lord, I welcome you in. Holy Spirit, I welcome you in. Just say that, Holy Spirit, I welcome you in. Holy Spirit, I welcome you in. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. And for all of us this morning, 
you know that your heart's been touched with this and it's horrible and it's, it, it's clawed into your life in a way it should never have done so, I want you to pray this, that prayer, that simple prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Cleanse me, Lord. Keep me clean. Help me, Lord, to be humble in all that you do in me. Never ever accepting that I think I've got it all together and I'm right and no one else is, Lord. Always, Lord, help me, Lord, to give all the glory to you. For you're worthy of all glory and all praise and all honour. You are great. You are wonderful. For unless we know God as being great and wonderful and awesome, we do not know him at all. 